0: This recording has been produced by Christchurch Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. I'll first start with uh, the readings. Our first reading is from Isaiah chapter 9. The Bible will be shown on the screen uh, in the New King James, but I'm going to read it from the ESV, just because it's a bit clearer in one or two places but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is the word of the Lord. And now I shall read the gospel. And as is our custom, when we hear the gospel of the kingdom, we stand in the presence of the king. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 23. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. This is the gospel of Christ. Just before we start, let's bow our heads in prayer. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Today, we will be looking at the passage in Matthew 4 which dramatically presents the start of Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee. Now, in the Bible reading, you no doubt noticed that the first reading from Isaiah contains the passage that was quoted in the Gospel reading. So we will look at that as well, Uh, in particular to clarify the context in which Isaiah was speaking. As you know, each of the four Gospels has its distinctive themes and emphasis, and two clear themes in Matthew are how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy plus the teaching and the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. And today's passage has both these aspects well represented. So turning to, looking at verse 12 of our passage, we see that this follows immediately after the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And, Micah, if you can show the uh, reading on the the text on the screen, that would be helpful. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And the passage we are looking at, and the parallel one in Mark's Gospel, make it seem like we are hearing about the first significant episode in Jesus' ministry, namely the announcement of the gospel followed by the calling of the, first two, of the first of the four disciples. But when we look at the other gospels, in particular, John's gospel, we can read several stories that actually happened before these events. The key thing to note here in verse 12, is that John the Baptist has been arrested by Herod. But in John chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, we read this, and I'll read it out. So this is John chapter 3. After these things, in other words, Jesus, after his meeting with Nicodemus in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptised. Now, John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, that last statement there, that John had not yet been thrown into prison, means that all the stories that we have in John's gospel from the middle of chapter 1 through to chapter 3 and even to chapter 4 have been skipped over in the account that we read in Matthew's Gospel. That includes the wedding at Cana in Galilee, Jesus' first visit to Jerusalem on the Feast of Pentecost, you know, the one when he, drew out, when he threw out the traders in the temple and his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3, as I said. And it seems likely also that we can include Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 as he travels back north from Judea to Galilee. And I'll refer to one of the other stories that's missed out when we look at the calling of the disciples later in the passage. But now returning to verse 13, we read, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt at Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, while it's true that Nazareth is in the tribal area of Zebulun and Capernaum is in the tribal area of Naphtali, this is not the reason why Matthew mentions these two tribes. It's clearly because these tribes are included in the prophecy from Isaiah that is quoted here in the gospel. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Now turn if you can or look at the screen and we'll have Isaiah 9 up there as well. Um, And again, I'm just going to uh, use the, um, the ESV version because it's a bit clearer. So this is Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. Passage contains references to gloom and darkness, but also to light. So let's see if we can clarify what Isaiah is referring to in terms of this contrast of darkness and light. Now the Lord says in Ezekiel chapter 5 that Jerusalem I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her and there is no doubt a spiritual truth in this. But you could also put it this way, that through most of the Old Testament history, Israel was in a buffer zone between two great competing empires. In the south of the Fertile Crescent was always Egypt, and to the north or to the northeast, there was a series of empires at the time of Isaiah in the 8th century BC, this empire was Assyria. And at this point in history, at the time of Isaiah, the northern kingdom of Israel, that is the 10 tribes, was in decline, and Assyria was on the rise. And a verse in 2 Kings 15:29 tells us that tiglath pileser king of Assyria, came and captured five cities in the Hula Valley. Now, that's the valley which is north of the Sea of Galilee. Plus the region of Gilead and Galilee and the land of Naphtali. And he carried away the people captive to Assyria. Now, this captivity was not the one that we normally think of, of the the northern tribe of Israel, This is one that happened just 10 years before that and it was certainly a warning shot for the people. Now, Isaiah was living in Jerusalem and around this same time, we read in Isaiah chapter 7 that Isaiah challenges the king of Israel, Ahaz, who was leading the people astray through idolatry. And then in chapter 8 of Isaiah the Lord warns that the king of Assyria will come in like a flood, reaching right up to the neck, which is actually a very accurate description of what indeed happened in the time of the following king, King Hezekiah. And the last verse of chapter 8, so this is the the verse that gives the immediate context of the prophecy in chapter 9 is talking about those people who lead astray or led astray through witchcraft and idolatry. It says this, these people will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness. So the darkness and gloom of anguish in this context It's not so much the oppression of a foreign power. It's actually the experience of people who have fallen away from the Lord through sin and idolatry. But then comes the contrast at the beginning of Isaiah chapter nine. And you notice whichever version you're looking at, it starts with the word but, or with the word nevertheless, which means you really do have to know the context. So it says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It's slightly different to that. but um, So the prophecy is saying that the Lord has brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by allowing them to be invaded and oppressed by the Assyrians. But in the latter days, he will completely turn the tables for this region of the Galilee and the Golan. Now, in verses 2 to 4 of this passage, this reversal is described in terms of the people seeing a great light. And in verse 3, experiencing the joy of the harvest. And in verse 4, being freed from the yoke of oppression. Now notice here in verse 4, that last line, as in the day of Midian. This is referring to Gideon's victory over the Midianites in Judges 6 and 7. Now, perhaps you remember the story about how he led an army of just 300 men and that in a space of a day or two, overwhelmed and completely destroyed the Midianite army that was encamped in Israel and oppressing the people. But you also may remember that Gideon was just an ordinary-looking guy No one would have thought that he was capable of greatness. But he obeyed the call of the Lord and gave him the glory and achieved a victory that was unexpected, decisive, comprehensive, and clearly the work of the Lord. Now, who does that remind you of? Let me just say that again. This Gideon, who just really seemed like an ordinary guy, and no one suspected him of greatness, he received the call from the Lord and obeyed and achieved a victory that was unexpected, decisive, comprehensive, and clearly the work of the Lord. I think it's great that Isaiah, of all the stories he could choose in the Old Testament, chose this one to represent what he sensed would be the impact of Jesus in that land and what the ultimate outcome would be, as in the day of Midian. And turning to the Gospels, we see that the land was indeed under the oppression of the Romans and their underlings, the Herodians. But the real darkness came from the oppression of sin and in the in the lives of the people and over the coming weeks and months in this church as we work through Matthew's gospel we will see many ways that Jesus through his teaching brings the light of revelation and through his acceptance and provision brings joy to the poor and by his power brings freedom from the oppression of the evil one. And Matthew gives us this famous phrase that Jesus used to announce his mission. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, has come near. But notice, uh, well, in, Matthew, in the previous chapter, to the one we read, in Matthew chapter 3, that we read that John the Baptist used the exact same phrase in his preaching, in his announcement of the gospel. Firstly, a quick clarification that I thought most of you will know already. The phrase, kingdom of heaven, is found only in Matthew's gospel. It comes over 30 times. But the other gospels use the phrase, kingdom of God which means exactly the same thing. But Matthew preserves this phrase, the one that Jesus used, because his intended audience was primarily Jewish. You see, by the time of the New Testament, the word God and the, the sacred four letter name of God were almost never spoken in an effort to never break the third commandment, the one that says you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. So the people, under the leadership of the religious leaders, used a number of different ways of referring to God, and heaven was one of the most common. Do you remember in the parable of the the prodigal son, he said, I have sinned against you, Father, and against heaven. He meant, I've sinned against God, but that was the way that people would refer to God. But there's also a good substitute of these a good example of these substitute names when Jesus is standing before the High Priest in, in Matthew or Mark's Gospel, and it says this Again the High Priest asked him and said to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Do you see? The power, that is power with a capital P. And that is blessed with a capital B. But these are examples of how realistically the people would talk to each other and refer to God by a different name that alluded to him. Now once a year I do some teaching back in Oxford, England, for the students who come to do a a one-year internship with the church that my wife and I attended for many years. And usually this group of people includes a theology graduate, and I have certain questions that I reserve for them, and one of them relates to this phrase, kingdom of heaven. I ask them, where does this phrase, in Hebrew, Malkut shamayim Appear in the Hebrew scriptures? It's a bit of a trick question because the answer is that it doesn't appear anywhere. But the reason why John and Jesus could use that very same phrase without any apparent introduction is because it was often discussed and taught about among the Jewish teachers and sages and had been for many years and many generations. Which is why we really need to study it and understand the context that Jesus grew up in, the context of the sages and the culture to understand these these things that are said. I tell my, my students that when you open the New Testament, you don't always realise that when you're reading the Gospels, you're reading a conversation in a different culture, and there are things that are not said that you don't realize, or things that are said in a different way, or idioms used that you might misunderstand. Now, this is not the same when you look at the epistles of Paul, where Paul is making his best effort to explain the gospel or do teaching in a cross-cultural way. He is a Jew, but he is reaching out to a Gentile Greek-speaking church, and he breaks things down and tries not to be misunderstood. But this is not the case with the gospels. There are so many things that Jesus says that are idiomatic and easily misunderstood. So this is why it is so important to to study and receive teaching on this aspect, this rich part, this rich vein of uh, understanding about the New Testament. I mean, the regulars at uh, this church, as well as those who listen online, will know that the topic of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is one that's spoken about often here. And we make no excuse for this, mainly because it's the heart of Jesus' mission and message, but also because it's been necessary over the years and over the decades to clear up some misunderstandings. And I'll just give one example. Now, sometimes people are taught or assume, and partly because of the word heaven, that it relates less to our present experience and more to a future reality, such that the important thing about the kingdom of heaven is its fulfillment either when we die and go to heaven or when Jesus returns at the end of the age. Now, the kingdom of heaven is sometimes spoken of as now and not yet. This is correct. There are indeed both aspects to the kingdom. But the mistake is to think that Jesus' use of the phrase kingdom of heaven was more about the future than about the present. Jesus does, of course, occasionally teach about his coming again, but he doesn't use the word king or the concept of kingdom when he's doing this. He usually uses his preferred term for himself, which is son of man. As in, and I'm going to quote a verse from Matthew 24. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. But the one time we do read in the New Testament about the coming king is not the kind of royal entrance that most people would expect. And this is how it goes. It says, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And Jesus fulfilled this on the Sunday before he was crucified. So even knowing this, that the kingdom was here and now, in fact, maybe a better way of, in English of saying, This announcement of the gospel would be, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. That would be a better way of understanding it. But even knowing that, um, it's easy to slip into the wrong way of thinking about the kingdom. And I've caught myself doing it. This is what happened. The prayer that we know so well goes like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, this is part of the prayer with my thoughts added. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Lord, looking around this world, we are so far from your kingdom. Lord, may your kingdom come quickly. You see, in thinking that, I made the same mistake of thinking that the, the kingdom It was more important the one that was coming rather than the one that was here and now. So instead, I try to pray with a different focus this prayer that the Lord taught us, just to acknowledge my responsibility for my small involvement in the kingdom. And if I were to put this into words, it would be like this. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, in my life here on earth as in heaven. And finally, now let's look at Jesus' calling of the first disciples. This is in the passage of Matthew 4, 18 to 20. I'll read just a couple of verses. Verse 18, and Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. And the following verses, we read a similar thing that happens with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They immediately leave their family business and follow Jesus. And the way that this is told is very dramatic, but actually there is more of a backstory, which at least helps us understand that it wasn't quite such a shock to the family and friends of the disciples as it might appear. Uh, uh, to explain this, I shall read some verses from John chapter 1. So this is um, uh, John 1, 35 to 42. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus, he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now, it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So did you notice that this passage actually relates to the day after the baptism of Jesus? So there would have been many months or even the better part of a year between what we've just read and then what we see in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus moves from Nazareth to Capernaum and calls the disciples. However, I can understand that the gospel writers want to emphasize the immense impact that Jesus had on those whom he called to follow him. But I think it's good to know also that their hearts were prepared. And in this context, it's also helpful to understand how an itinerant teacher or sage of this time gathered his disciples all Jewish boys received a grounding in a knowledge of the scriptures, mainly through memorization, starting with the Torah and then on to the prophets and the Psalms. And if they showed particular ability in their teenage years, they were taught the oral traditions and how to engage in in discussion and debate, i.e. how to ask questions. The talented and studious few could then approach a teacher or a sage and ask to be accepted as a disciple. But Jesus did not operate that way. Remember he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should remain. Peter and Andrew were fishermen. They worked hard both day and night. They couldn't just walk up to and ask this great teacher if he would take them on. They were just not the kind of candidates. They were just ordinary, simple folk. But I think in those months after they first met Jesus, they couldn't stop talking about him and perhaps they were even trying to work out how they could spend more time in his company and then jesus comes and walks by the galilee and says follow me they immediately left everything and followed him and they never looked back amen May we, too, never look back. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we bless you, Lord, for the testimony of your word, for the riches it contains, but above all, Lord, for the work and the character of our Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that he speaks even today, even to our hearts, and we bless you for that. Amen.